I saw this on Facebook. Somebody posted it, so I wanted to share it with you. Here uh, here are 10 rules to dating my daughter. She's only six, but I'm watching you, okay? Rule number one, get a job. And dads of daughters, if you want to agree and say amen, you can say amen. Rule number two, understand that I don't like you. Rule number three, I am everywhere. (laughs) This is my favorite. Four, you hurt her and I hurt you. Okay? Five, Annette, you resonating with me? Number five, be home 30 minutes early. Rule number six, do get a lawyer. Okay? (laughs) Number seven, if you lie to me, I will find out. All right. Well, number eight, she's my princess, not your conquest. Well, number nine, I don't mind going back to jail. <laughs> and this is another story for another time, but your pastor's actually been inside of a jail cell for a few hours, but I was, Okay. If you want to know why, you could ask me after the service. And rule number 10, whatever you do to her, I will do to you, okay? Um, This this portion of our sermon series, so if you're joining us for the first time, it's going to kind of feel a bit awkward because what we've been talking about is we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, you guys, Matthew, primarily 5 to 7. And we've been talking about how when God's rule and reign comes invading into your life, there's a radical transformation that occurs, and you become different. I love this translation of Romans 12 too. This is the Amplified Bible version where it says, Don't be fashioned after and adapted to this world's external superficial customs. In other words, if you are a Christian, there's a profound sense in which you become unfashionable. There's a radical change and transformation that occurs in us. And this not only happens to us as individuals, but what happens is that a group of people together as a community begin living this way in a way that we become a counterculture community, an alternate city, a new community, if you will. So when we've been been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and immediately, right right around within a few verses, Jesus starts talking about sexual ethics. By the way, it's been really encouraging for me as your pastor to just some of you guys just come up and go, I really thank you for what you've been talking about, because it's not talked about in churches. And I got to tell you, it hasn't been easy for me to talk about this because this goes so against the grain of what you believe and what I believe. That for some of us, it's felt like being kind of in a twilight zone, like this doesn't even make any sense. So Jesus goes to the heart of it and he begins talking about uh, God's version and God's biblical view of sex within marriage. Then he talks about marriage, which we'll talk a little bit about today as well. And then he talks about divorce. And then out of nowhere, he talks, talks about singleness. And so where we come to today, where we come to today, and I'll just got to give you a preview, is that as we've talked about all of these things, I have to kind of conclude this sermon within a sermon series on what it means to date. 
and what Christian dating is. Now, if you're married and you're going, ah, oh, I came at the wrong Sunday, I'm actually going to talk more about marriage than I'm actually talking about dating. So it's a great opportunity for those of us that are married or about to be married to kind of sit back and go, where is our marriage? How, how, how are we doing? Uh, but, but just a brief recap, we ended on singleness. Um, and uh, thank you for the emails, which were very hard to read, but also encouraging. And here's what we said, okay? And we'll just put it up on the screen. We said that singleness under any conditions, whether it be permanent or temporary, has to be seen as a calling or you can't endure it. Singleness is, is to be looked upon as a calling or you can't endure it. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 19. And inherent in this idea is that singleness is not inferior or superior. And I said this last a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again. The reason why this is so hard, and all the emails from a lot of you, the reason why this is so hard is because in the church, we've, ido- we've idolized marriage as sort of the end all and be all. So singles sit in churches week after week, and, and they ask questions like, am I valued? Is my season when I, in my singleness, is even worth it to God? And, and say, take it even further. Singles have been told lies in the church by whether it be pastors or others with lies like this. And, and I heard some of you actually tell me things like, the day that you become content is when God will what? Give you a man. Or, or I, this, I love this version. Somebody even came up to said, Pastor Peter, the church I grew up in, they said, the day that you stop looking <laughs> is the day that God. And so I said, we've created a generation of women who are pretending to be content in God so that God will give them a man. You're all I want. Where is he? Is, you're all I've ever need. Where is he? We're walking around, men and women, pretending like we could fool God, right? And God's looking at us, I think, heartbroken. And he wants to say, singleness is neither inferior nor superior to marriage. Marriage is not a permanent thing. And we'll talk about that a little bit more today. So here's the second thing that we talked about. was that Christians are called to choose between marriage and singleness, not for personal fulfillment, but on the basis of which state best makes us a sign of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the question that we need to be asking is this. Ask, what will make me most useful for God's kingdom? Again, this is all review. If you're single, if you're married, it's a season I've been called. Ask the question, what state will make me best, most useful for the kingdom of God? Now, if marriage idolatry is a big issue in the Christian community, culture at large, you know what else is a big issue that's toxic? It's the opposite. And it's what I want to talk a little about today. Not only is marriage idolatry toxic, but the other is what I will call the idolatry of individual freedom and personal fulfillment. Both are toxic to this and what we're talking about. Not only is this sort of unhealthy, unbiblical culture established because people idolize idolatry, but there's also this sense within the church people claim to follow Christ who idolatry, 
who idolize this aspect of individual freedom and personal fulfillment. Sociologists have talked about how we live in a culture of marriage avoidance, especially among singles, and they're pushing marriage further and further back. And they're good sociological data for many reasons. One, a lot of us come from broken families, divorced families. And so we've seen horrible examples where we're going, if that's what marriage is, my parents said that, I don't want it. Some of us, we are new Christians, and we know what it's like to date as non-Christians. We know what it's like to casually date and to date for sexual fulfillment. But you become a Christian, all of a sudden you realize, both directly and indirectly, Christian dating is a lot more intentional, is a lot more serious. And frankly, the thought of dating in a relationship like this is a little bit scary. But among those other two reasons, I just want to say to you, what I've seen as a pastor and what I've observed is that even Christian mostly men, but women too, they idolize, idolize and value above all else individual freedom and personal fulfillment. And so our desire, our need for low romantic relationships or our desire to kind of push away serious relationships is because we want to do whatever the heck we want to, whenever we want to, without anybody telling us otherwise. I see this in the church. I see this in the church. I just walked away from a premarital counseling session with the guy, with the dude. And I asked him, I said, why did you struggle so long with this whole day? And you know what he said to me? He goes, Pastor Peter, frankly, the thought that if I get married, I can't do what I want. His words, I can't do what I want, when I want, how I want it done, scares me. Mm, idolatry of individual freedom, personal fulfillment. I just got to ask. For those of us sitting here going, I don't really need, you know, serious relationship, please, don't, it's because I'm content in God, you're not that spiritual. <laughs> do you idolize, I don't want to do whatever I want, you know what, and being a late friend, do you idolize that to a point where you're going, marriage avoidance, I fear this thing that requires this commitment. Both are at play in this church and in churches across America. Idolatry of individual freedom, personal fulfillment, idolatry of marriage as the end all and be all. So how do you date and get involved in the relationships that's glorifying to the kingdom? Here's what I want to talk about. By the way, by the way, real quick, and I'll, I'll get to you at the end. A sign that you've made an idol of individual freedom and personal fulfillment is that you're extremely perfectionistic and impossible to satisfy in terms of who you're looking for. And you use the name of, I'm just not going to settle for less. No. It's nothing, for, nothing to do with settling for less. When you idolize individual freedom and personal fulfillment, your posture is, she has to be perfect. He has to be perfect. Seasonal marriage seeking. Seasonal marriage seeking. Here's what I want to talk about. Seasonal marriage seeking. Because Christians fall into two extremes, right? Some people, and this is some of you in this church, you're all about casual dating. Raise your hands if you're all about casual dating. Of course, nobody's going to raise their hands. We're going to look at each other. We're going to judge you. That's why, right? But there are some of us who are like casually, I just want to go out, have fun. No, 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 really no serious. That's some of us. The other extreme view, frankly, is some of us who go, unless I know she's the one. Unless I know he's the one. Unless I know this is going to end in marriage. I don't even want to touch. 
two extremes. Here's what I want to say. I think the important question to ask is, what life of season are you in? Give you examples. If you're starting a new job, if you're taking care of someone who's really ill in your family, or you're moving to new, you're starting a graduate program, if you have gone through or are coming out of an emotionally charged season in life, your judgment is going to be clouded and your motives suspect. I don't think it's wise to enter into serious dating relationships when you've come out of an emotionally charged or a difficult transition in life. Here's another, and this is not biblical, God's truth. Here's another. I also don't think it's wise to date seriously if you're 20 years old. Can I just, listen, this might be cultural. This isn't biblical. Let me just throw this out there in case I get shot with arrows. Because some of you are like, my parents got married when they were 18 and they're perfectly happy. I'm, I'm happy for you, okay? <laughs> Here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying, okay? Again, it's my personal opinion. I think when you're 20, 21 years old, you're a different person than when you're 26, 27, or 28. And being in a serious relationship shapes you both good and for bad. So if you're one of those people who got married when you were 20, 21, and you've had a 30-year marriage that's beautiful, I'm so happy for you. I really am. I'm not being sarcastic. It's awesome. But for a vast majority of us, I don't know if it's wise to enter into a serious relationship when you're 20 or 21. Having said that, if you're older or if you have gone out and dated and have been in this relationship for a while, I think it is absolutely appropriate that at some point you move from casual dating to more serious marriage seeking. I think after a certain point, a certain stage in life, you do need to ask the question of, is this person someone that I could see for the rest of my life with? And if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're older and you've been going out and that person's like, you do need to pull that person over and go, what are we doing? What is this? What are we doing? I think it's perfectly appropriate, women, to confront the man and say, what is this? What are we doing? Where is this going? Seasonal marriage seeking. Not casual dating only. Not, I just want to bait somebody who I want to marry. There's no biblical view of marriage. I'm sorry, there's no biblical view on dating. And the reason is because somebody betrothed you when you were like two years old, okay? That was the biblical perspective. But what the Bible does say, it has tons of things to say about marriage. And since all Christian dating needs to be pursued with the perspective that this is ultimately going to end in marriage, what I want to talk to you about for the rest of today is how do I go about discerning compatibility in terms of can this person ultimately be my spouse? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to briefly recap the three main aspects of what a marriage is, and then we'll draw out some principles. Matthew 19, 5. Remember, we talked about this. In this short, compact two verses, Jesus talks about the entirety of what the essence of marriage is. Matthew 19, 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We talked about the purpose of marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? It's what? For this reason, the Bible says, God created marriage. And the institution of marriage created was so that Adam would not be alone. And the Hebrew word for Eve is the word halup or helper or 
permanent or lifetime companion. And the principle we drew out was this, that our spouses are meant to be our best friend, our best counselors. So here's a question. Does this person have the potential to be your number one counselor and number one best friend? And if you're married, the question we're asking is, in the context of marriage, is my wife, is my husband my absolute best friend and my absolute best counselor, someone who I am totally transparent with, someone who knows me inside out, and someone in whom I have a security and safety to be utterly, utterly vulnerable? Does this person have the potential to be your number one friend and number one counselor? See, some of us are too scared to commit, but others of us are too ready to commit, even though the person isn't even close to this. The question is not that they look right, not that they have the right connection, but the question we need to ask is, does this person have the potential to be my best friend? I'm going to say one last time, and then I'm going to move on. Because I've had some of you who are dating non-Christians come up to me and go, that really bothers me. And here's what I want to say. It's got nothing to do with a legalistic, you must date a Christian if you're a Christian. It's got all about this. The essence of intimacy within marriage is that that person knows you inside out and you can be totally transparent with them. The essence of intimacy in marriage is that your spouse is someone that you could be utterly who you are, that you could be in every way naked with and know that you are accepted. And if you are a committed follower of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is is an everyday engine that drives everything that you do, yes? So that as you're reading scripture, as you're praying, as you engage with Jesus every single day of your life, your spouse is someone who you can be totally transparent with and say, this is what God is doing to me. This is what God is working in me. My wife and I have this language. So what's the H you doing in your life? H.G. stands for Holy Ghost. My wife, my wife doesn't like to talk openly, you know, about the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. She's kind of one of those folks that are very personal and private in terms of what God is doing. But my wife knows me so well that she'll go, what's the H.G. doing in your life? What is she asking? Peter, are you submitted to the Lord? Are you submitted to Jesus Christ? In this decision, in these things that you're doing, are you driven by your ambition, your goals, or are you submitted to the holy? What's the H you do in your life? Now, can I, do you think I could have that conversation with someone who's not even a Christian? What's the H you doing in your life? What the heck are you talking about? The fundamental beginning point of my wife and our relationship, you guys, is one in which we are both submitted to Jesus so that when we butt heads, we don't go, I'm you. We butt heads and we each submit to the lordship and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And if it's not somebody that I could talk to openly about that, you know what I'm going to do? Two things. Either I'm going to take Jesus Christ from the center of my life and put him in the periphery, or I'm going to let my passion for Jesus cool. Because if that person doesn't understand the fundamental motivation of why you do what you do, they're either going to be bored by you or they're going to be offended. Does this person have the ability to be your best friend, to be your number one counselor? Some of you will say, "Uh, you just narrowed down the list of candidates, Peter. No, no, no. I just deepened your understanding of what marriage is. I just forced you to not be superficial. Can they be your number one best friend, your number one counselor? Here's another question. 
Can you change each other for the better? Can you change each other for the better? Conflict is normal. Conflict is inevitable. When I'm doing premarital counseling with people and they go, Pastor Peter, we never argue. We never fight. I go, then you don't have a real relationship. Because if you're in a real relationship, this is going to happen. It's normal. It's natural. But here's the question. It's not, do you argue? Do you fight? Is there conflict? But the question is, what's the result of the conflict? Do you walk away having changed each other for the better? Do you find that you're able to solve problems together? Do you find that the conflict doesn't end in an unhealthy, unbiblical way of just creating more conflict, but the end result is that you're probably able to solve problems together? Do you have a track record of conflict resolution? Are there battle scars? Are there scrapes? Are there, are there confrontations where you come out on the other side change for the better? Can that person point to things in your life that needs to be changed and do it in a way that's winsome? Is there sharpening? Are you a better person? Are you a more generous person? Are you a more gracious person because you're in that relationship? Or, listen carefully, or are you in a relationship where that person just drains you? Are you in a relationship where being around that person just makes you more insecure? Are you in a relationship where being around that person, you're afraid to be transparent and totally who you are because you don't know if you can be accepted or not? What's the relationship doing to you? Is it iron sharpens iron? Or is it draining you, making you more insecure? How do you handle conflict? Third, what is his or her posture towards the world? Do they serve or are they just waiting to be served? Are you dating somebody who acts like they're owed something? Like they've gotten sort of the short end of the stick in life. Or is he out to see what he can give and serve? Do they see themselves as being there to make, here to make the world a better place? You know what I would encourage everybody that's dating or about to date? Do a service project with that person. Find out if they have loves running through their veins. Here's another one. Take them to a family reunion. Stick them to, stick them to crazy Uncle Bob and see how he reacts. In all seriousness, are they gracious? Are they generous? Do they have love running through their veins? Or do they act like the world owes them something? Are they a servant at heart and saying, how do I make the world a better place? Can they be your best counselor, best friend? Can you change each other for the better? What's their posture towards the world? The purpose of marriage. We also talked about the priority of marriage. Let's get to it. The priority of marriage. Here's some other things. He says the man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And we said that more than any other relationship, that marriage must have a priority. Why? Because it's the most powerful. It's the most powerful. In Genesis, God doesn't put a parent and a child and saying, that's the most important relationship. He doesn't put two people the same gender, friends, and saying, that's the most important relationship. He puts a husband and wife and saying, that's the most important relationship. Why? Because it's the most powerful. Listen to guys. And, and those of you that are married, you know this. And those of you that are single, you just hear this and you go, come on, Peter, is that really true? The Bible says that because God invented marriage, the that the marriage relationship has the power to recreate your self-image. I've seen husbands who, because within the marriage context, they're being affirmed and encouraged and saying, you can be used by God. Even if the entire world is shouting out, you're a loser, they'll be able to move out into the world in strength. The wife has that kind of power over the husband. Same thing. 
The entire world might be saying to the wife, you're the, you're, the, you're the most unattractive person in the world. But if the husband, if they're married in a marriage in which the husband adores the wife, or just adores her. By the way, there's, there's nothing more attractive to me as a married man than seeing relationships in which the husband, you could just tell, just adores the wife. You know what I'm talking about? It's not like gross PDA. That's what I'm talking about. PDA grosses me out a little bit, you know. But just, just, just adore, you know what I'm, just adores the wife. And then I also see marriages where I'm going, wow, the entire world is shouting to her, like, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. But clearly in the marriage, the man just goes, nah. And she walks out into the world feeling, nah. Your marriage is the power to counter and challenge all the accumulated verdicts of your life. What do I mean? Your self-image is being shaped every day by what people say. Mostly by criticisms. Every day. Every day. You walk out. You come home. You've been shaped by what the world says to you in your self-image. Your marriage has the power to challenge that for the good or for the worse. Married couples, here are the questions for you. Is your marriage your priority? Over your career? Over your children? Over your parents? Over your friends? If you're singles, here's a question that we need to ask. Are your gifts and your calling moving in the same direction? Can you ask that question? Are your gifts moving in the same direction? We're all called in a general sense to follow Christ and to be about the king and the kingdom. But we all have different callings in terms of jobs, occupations. I said this last time. Some of us are called to the city. We love the city. We were born and raised in the city. We can't go anywhere else and be content. And then there's some others of us who are like, I hate the city. I can't wait to get out of here. And if two of you are dating and one of you wants to be in the city and the other wants to get the heck out of here, that is a source in which you need to have serious conversations. Sometimes, People want to stay here. Other times, people want to go overseas. Is there coordination in terms of your calling? Here's another question you need to ask. What are your levels of financial expectation? Some of you feel very strongly about living a life of simplicity. Others of us don't. Some of us feel called to lots of education. Others of you don't. Is there coordination? Here's a third question. What are the levels of church involvement you desire? Some of you feel very strongly to serve within the church. Some of you feel very strong to serve outside the church. Neither is right or wrong. But what are the expectations? Is there clarity? Is there coordination? And fourth, what about the roles within marriage? What happens when the kids come along? Who stays home? For how long? How many children do you want to have? Any at all? Those are the things. Oh, here's another one too. Please talk about how close you want to be with your in-laws. <laughs> Married couples, can I get an Amen. I mean, I can't, <laughs> I can't for the life of me understand why married couples don't talk about this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like after they get married, the wife was like, I want to move near my parents because I want to see them every weekend. And the husband's like, over my dead body. <laughs> they look at you like, hello, how come we don't want to? Talk about things like how close do we want to be with our families? What's the level of involvement? Now, all of you sitting there going, Peter, all of these sound so unromantic. It's not about being unromantic. It's about being realistic about what marriage is. All right. Let's continue to move on, shall we? The essence of marriage. The third is the essence of marriage. Essence of marriage, it's the covenant. 
You're making a public promise to permanently, exclusively, legally commit to sharing your entire life with one another. In marriage, in a covenant, you're saying, I promise not just today, but 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, if I'm still alive, I will be faithful to you. I'll be loyal to you. I will serve you. I will cherish you. In marriage, you're not just making a promise for today, but you're promising for future love. Can I just say something? I'll put it up there. When you really look at what Bible has to say about marriage, you realize it's not so much about compatibility, but it's about commitment. Here's the reason why. Bible says that God designed marriage. Marriage to be a reflection of our relationship with him. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of our relationship to him. Question, is there any relationship that's more incompatible than a holy, righteous God? and sinful bride. And yet God says, that's the mold we're aiming for. If you want to go, are we compatible? Ask, are we compatible with God? And yet he says, I've committed to you. I've committed to you. Are you overemphasizing compatibility at the expense of Commitment. I, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, so I'm just going to say a word about this. There has to be a wholesale, please listen, revolution in the way that we think because we've got it completely backwards. Because the Bible says, listen, please, the Bible says the foundation of a healthy relationship marriage is it starts with commitment and friendship. And out of commitment and friendship grows romance and sexuality. Let me say it again. It's essence and the foundation is commitment and friendship, covenant and friendship. And out of that grows romance and sexuality, not the other way around. But the way that we have it is totally backwards. The way we have it, we start with sexuality and romance. And if that goes okay, then we think friendship. And if that goes okay, then we think commitment. And the Bible says you could not have gotten it more backwards. And if you go, that's not true for me. That's the reason why single Christians will walk into a room, they'll survey the people that are there, find the four, five, six most attractive people, not knowing who they are, personality, temperament, nothing, and go, I exclude you, I exclude you, I exclude you, I exclude you. Why? They just don't look right. What are we doing? We're starting out with romance and sexuality and then saying, if it goes okay, friendship and commitment. And the Bible says, healthy sexuality, healthy romance arises out of Friendship and commitment. Now, what I want to do next 10, 15 minutes or so is this. When I was inundated with emails, I was going to actually just read the questions that people were asking and, and then just kind of answer them up here. But what I did was, for the next 10, 10 minutes or so, I'm just going to frame all the questions that I received about all the stuff that we talked about the last three, four weeks. Okay? Here's a question that was asked. But what about feelings? Anybody asking that? What about feelings? Anybody? But I, and people go, don't you care about feelings? Like, do you not have attraction for your wife? Like, do you not? I go, of course I do. And of course, feelings and attraction matter. But the issue is this. We don't start there. Let me say it again. We don't start there. Let me say it one more time. We don't start there. We don't start with attraction and feeling. We don't start there. And if you go, well, but then how can you be in a relationship? We talked about this like three weeks ago. In a covenant relationship, when you're committed to somebody, 
When you're committed to somebody, when you're committed to that person, in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings grow. If you're in a covenant relationship which you're committed to somebody, despite your feelings, deeper feelings grow. One example that I gave was this parent-child relationship. You guys, parents with children, you get nothing back. It is the least satisfying, fulfilling relationship ever. I'm just being real with you guys. But here's the thing. As much as they are unlovable, as much as they act in ways that just try your patience, as much as they challenge you and stretch you in ways that you would have never imagined, because you're so invested in them somehow, despite all the things that they do, there is deep, profound feeling that grows. That causes you to go, I don't mind going back to jail. That causes you to go, I would gladly tomorrow lay down my life for her. If you're waiting for feelings to develop so then you can commit, you may wait forever. Here's another question that was asked. What happens if feelings don't grow? I was asked this by several people who are dating, who are kind of involved or interested. And they said, Peter, they seem to have all the characteristics and traits, but the feelings and affection just aren't there. You know, like they, they love the Lord, they, they're serving, and they're godly, and they've got all the they're good people come from good friends. But they just, I just, they're there. And here's what I would say, three things, okay? One. <laughs> Again, this isn't the word of the Lord. This is my personal opinion. Here's what you might need to do. One, you might need a change in perspective. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Could it be that the reason why our feelings aren't growing is because our feelings are still wedded to our old notion of what we think would make a good marriage partner? Could it be that our feelings, in other words, your feelings were tied to people that you would have screamed out immediately before. They just don't look right. And so when you look at this person, this man or woman, you're going, how come I don't have feelings? The reason is because in your old understanding of what marriage and good partner was, you go, I would never want to be with you. Why? They don't look right. So the reason why with that person, friends, community group, the feelings might not be growing is because you're a Feelings and attraction is so wedded to your old understanding of what you think would make a good marriage partner that that's why some of us go, well, you know, when I was dating him, though, I had the, that's because that dude was exact. Let me put it this way. It's because you had a pathological understanding of what would make a good marriage partner in that guy. And you go, but I, and now you're going, but I'm not looking for that guy. I'm looking for someone with these qualities. And so some of us, I'm serious, I'm dating relationships. Or some of us are into somebody, we're going, why aren't the feeling? Ask yourself the question. Are my views and attitude mindset so wedded to my old understanding, a pathological understanding, a bad understanding of what would make a good marriage partner, that the feelings just aren't there. Number two, if the feelings don't grow, it could be lack of communication. Here's the reason why I talked about what I talked about earlier. I've seen couples who will come in at the very last minute because they're like, Pastor Peter, we've been dating for a while. I don't know if this will work. And when I get down to it, here's what I find. 
these two things among other things. One, they say, when we talk, we realize that we have different callings. Like he wanted to do that, I want to do this, or she wanted to do this. But because we so wanted to be together, we just kind of shoved it under the rug, just didn't want to talk about it. And lack of communication about, are your callings sort of coordinated? Are you heading towards the same direction together? Has come to a point now where there's insecurity, anxiety, and going, I don't know if we can be together. So I say, you need to talk about it. You need to talk about it. You need to figure out if this is going to work. Another is one in which early in the relationship, one person told the other person about their past. Their sexual past, their family past, some past. And the initial shock, they get over it, and they go, okay, but we still want to be together. But they never fully delve and talk about their past and what happened. And six, seven, eight, nine months, a year, two years into the relationship, lack of communication about their past, lack of communication about what they've gone through, what they've done, is a big factor where they're going, why am I not more committed to communication? Here's a third. My feelings don't grow. You just might need to stuff it. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Oh, no. I'm going to say it gently and yet firmly. Some of us, if we're the type of person that will date for a while and at some point go, well, I'm out, and you have a pathological history of doing that, I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to call you out. You just need to go, I have a pathological understanding of what a commitment, or commitment or a relationship or marriage is. And what we might need to do is go, you know what, God? This has nothing to do with the other person. It's stuff that I'm dealing with, stuff that I'm wrestling with. A few months ago, I was sitting down with a fella who was going to be married a week later. A week later. He's telling me all these things and all these things. Basically, he's having huge doubts. Is it cold feet, Michael? Is that what they call it? Cold feet? They go, I have cold feet. A week before the wedding! Shared with this fiance who was unbelievably understanding. Okay? So I sat there, listened to him for an hour. And the basis of what he said was, I idolize personal fulfillment and individual freedom. And I just don't know if I can go do this. I just looked him across, goes across the table, and I said to him, I said, you need to grow up and stuff your feelings. You need to grow up and just stuff your feelings. Happy to report, they're very happily married. <laughs> if you talk to him today, you know what he'd say to you? You know what he'd say to you? He would say, nobody looked me in the eyes and challenged me with my dysfunctional, pathological understanding and just said, you need to stuff it and grow up. There's nothing more to it. Okay, moving on. <laughs> For those of you that are going, but Peter, please don't make light of this because there's really a block, a genuine block that's giving me pause. What then? Here's my fourth. Submit to community input. Submit to community input. You know what else I did with the guy? Same guy? You know, here's what I did. I sat there and I said, okay, have you talked about this to your parents, mentors? He said, yes, yes, yes. I said, so let me ask you this. Collectively, all together, there are 350 years of life wisdom that are telling you she's the perfect person for you. And there's you, 25-year-old wisdom that's saying, I don't know if this is the one. 350 years of wisdom. 25. Submit to community input. Get the people that you're around and saying, what's going on here? 
Speak truth into my life. I'm submitting to you. Talk to me here. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? What are the things that I have to die to that's causing me these things? Just as we wouldn't make any other decisions on our own with this critical decision about who we date, who we're with, who we're about to marry, we submit to community input to our brothers and sisters and go, hey, what do you guys think? Here's another question that was asked. How do I know he or she is the right person? How do I know he or she is the right person? This is simple. I'm just going to tell you right now. They're not. They're not. Should we move on? Okay. They're not. Here's what I mean. Marriage, marriage, you never marry the right person. You'll always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person. Josh. (laughs) You always marry the wrong person. I can point to any married couples. Here's what I mean. And please, and this might be the most important thing, most important lie, most important lie that needs to be just disintegrated. You always marry the wrong person. Here's what I mean. My wife that I married in 1998 is not who she is today. She is a completely different person. And thank the Lord. (laughs) I am not who I was in 1998. Help him, Lord is right, Michael. We never marry the right person because marriage changes us. Within two, three years, the person you marry, you're going to go, who did I marry? Because they're a different person. They're a different person. We never know who it is that we marry. There is no such a thing as the right person on the front end because they change on you and you change on them. Marriage changes you. And can we just be, can we just, do you know where I think this whole right person comes from? Let me break it down this way. When we say we want the right person, a lot of us are saying things like, I want to make sure that they have their stuff together. I want to make sure that they're low maintenance. I want to make sure that, that, you know, they're fulfilling my needs in a way that I need to be met. I want to make sure that they're the total package to which I go, basically what you're saying is, you want somebody who will fulfill all your needs without asking too much of you. So let me get this straight. What you're saying is, I want the right one. Low maintenance, have all their stuff together, got a great job, da 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 And they just make me feel like I'm the greatest thing in the world. And I want to go, so really your desire for the right person is more about you than it is about them. Is your longing for the right person really about that person or is it really about you saying, I want that, 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 that. Uh, which basically translates to low commitment, low sacrifice on me, high commitment, high sacrifice on them. Idol of personal fulfillment. Do you know what marriage is in the Bible? And some of y'all that are married and you've been doing this, you've been doing this in your marriage, we need to go back to Ephesians 5. Here's what Bible says about marriage is. Bible says that marriage, husbands, can you go right before that? Right before that? 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Pay attention. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy in place. One more time. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Is Jesus' perspective on us, the bride? They did their stuff together. The whole point, Jesus, that I entered into a relationship with you is because you don't have your stuff together. And marriage, Jesus says, is this. Marriage is us being used by God. Us being used by God for our spouse's sanctification and for our spouse's spiritual growth through our selfless, sacrificial service. Marriage. The purpose of marriage, our culture's personal satisfaction, low maintenance, got their stuff together, and all of that stuff will fulfill my need. The Bible says that marriage is personal sanctification. It is for you and I, you and I, to be a vehicle for helping our spouses become their best and sanctify itself through our sacrificial, selfless service. Do you know why marriage, marriage, you hold it up, marriage, you hold it up. You know what the Bible says? Marriage is a model of the gospel. Marriage is a model of the gospel. What do I mean? The reason why marriage is so painful and wonderful at the same time is because the gospel is so painful and wonderful at the same time. The Bible says that marriage is just like the gospel. The gospel says that even though we are more sinful and wicked than we dare believe, in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we dare hope at the same time. And we know that that relationship in which we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe, but at the same time we are more loved and accepted, that kind of relationship transforms and changes us. That's why some of you are sitting here saying, the gospel is transforming. The Bible says that marriage is the same way. In a marriage where you are wicked and sinful. But in a marriage, when someone at the same time loves you and accepts you unconditionally, the Bible says that radiates the gospel and it changes you. It changes you. So I said this a couple weeks ago, the answer to the right person, you're not looking for a beautiful sculpture, a beautiful David, a beautiful work of art. You're just looking for big blocks of marble. Big blocks of marble. And marriage and so much, hey, you're the perfect right person for me, so we're going to, marriage is, I know you're not the perfect person for me. You're pretty wicked and sinful. But let me show you how you can be accepted and loved at the same time. And so marriage is not, hey, you're the perfect person I found you. Marriage is, we're both imperfect. But you know what? God is going to use us to demonstrate the gospel. Let's go on this journey together. I'm not just falling in love with your present, because your present, frankly, is not all that. But I'm committed to your future with you. Will you do this with me? Will you go with me? Will you go with me? It's being able to look at somebody and go, I see the potential and the possibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ being displayed in our relationship. Will you go to the future with me? Will you go to the future with me?
It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. But I want to go there with you. Let's do this together. Let's do this together. Don't work. Don't look for finished works of sculpture. Look for great blocks of marble in whom God is at work. Okay. Now I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of things. And we're going to end with a, with, 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 with a challenge for our entire church. And these are, again, answers to questions that were asked. I'm not going to ask the questions. I'm just going to answer them. One, please look for love in all the right places. Singles, we all look up here? Don't make your mission to get married. Let me say that again. Don't make your mission to get married. Make your mission God's cause and God's kingdom. And go to places in which same people are going and pursuing God's mission and God's cause. Let me say it again. You make your mission in life to get married. You get neither marriage or anything else. But if you make your mission in life, God's cause and God's kingdom, and go to places in which men and women are also about God's kingdom and God's cause, you may be able to find the person, find the person that you can be with. Don't make your mission to get married. Make your mission God's cause and God's kingdom. Secondly, don't let your mind marry him or her before the rest of you can. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. And then maybe the younger, I can't tell you. Number, I'll be sitting in a coffee shop, and this is both he and she. They'll lean over, and they go, but he told me he loved me. I just want to go, who told you that? When you say to somebody, I love you, do you know what that does to a person's heart and soul? Unless you're willing to be committed and really committed to that person, please don't flip it. You know why? Because in Christian, in Christian romance and relationship, I mean, your mind and your heart and expectations will go because you know your, the trajectory is towards marriage. And so your imagination and your heart could many times proceed where the actual commitment of the relationship is. And if you're someone sitting here today going, I don't even know if we're going to be committed to each other or we are committed to each other, but man, my mind and my heart and my emotions is... It's dangerous. And it's not just for 16-year-old high school kids. In your 20s. Here's another one. Somebody asked this question. Here's my answer. Don't romanticize things too quickly. You know what's the best part about dating relationships is? Seeing that person interact with other people. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's really hard. It's really hard to see someone as they really are. If your candles and like, you know, an expensive steak and the music is playing... That's not the real them. Are you kidding me? That's not who they are. I'll put them in a group setting and just watch and observe and go, who are you really? It's a lot easier to value, evaluate character in group settings than it's one-on-one. Some of you are like, I was duped. I know. <laughs> Third, boundaries make for best of friends. Oh, good Lord. I feel like I'm back in my youth group days, you know, youth pastor. Touching leads to more touching. Don't. (laughs) My youth group days. Don't talk on the phone for hours at night. But that's exactly what I'm going to say. Touching leads to more (laughs) touching. You know what I mean, right? Come on. You you feed the appetite for intimacy and... Some of us have real hard problems with sexual boundaries. And I've talked to some of you in a lot of this sermon series. Every single one of your story was, it's not like, oh, we, you know, the, the, the lust demon got a hold of us. And all of a sudden, within a minute, our clothes were off. And we didn't know what the heck we were doing. <laughs> Nobody says that. Nobody. 
You know what they all say? Yeah, we went back to our place, and then what? You know, we just took off our shoes. We're kind of laying on the couch, and then what? We got a glass of wine, and then what? We drank the wine, and then what? A couple more cups, and then what? We turned on a movie, and then what? The hand, and the, you know the history. Why are you talking on the phone like at four in the morning? Aren't you tired from work? <laughs> you know, I got to contextualize it. You know, in high school, don't fall asleep in science class. But for some, we're working. Like, the next two, next three, one, respect. What do I mean? Please. Don't play games with people's emotions. Singles! Don't play games with people's emotions. If you have feelings for the other person, tell her or tell him. You know, we're on the phone until 4 o'clock in the morning, but you know, we're just friends. No, you're not just friends. You know, I leaned over and accidentally touched your hand, but you know, we're still friends. <laughs> Not just friends. I've had single men and women in our church tell me, Pastor Peter, so-and-so is playing mind games with me. So-and-so is playing mind games with me. They act like we're kind of, uh, and then they're cold the next day. They kind of act like cold. And I just want to pull my, what little hair I have, I want to pull it out and go, why are we no different from the rest of the world? We're seriously the respect for our brothers and our sisters. If you're sitting here today and you are playing emotional mind games with another sister or another brother, I want to challenge you first and foremost, please go repent of that and secondly, tell him or her. Another, ask her out. If you like someone, will you please ask her out? No, I need to clap. I said to my wife three weeks ago, she's like, you're such an idiot. What's clapping with your hearts? <laughs> what, is, what is clapping with your hearts? I'm like, you know, I didn't want them to do like, you know. <laughs> One of the most difficult things for me to hear is when a single Christian woman in our church says, even though I hate to, this is the reason why I'm more attracted to non-Christian men, Pastor Peter, because they will actually ask people out. And I don't even know what to do with that. Except to say, Christian men, we have to do better. We must do better. Women, I have something for you too, though. Can I just tell you? And this is for men too, so I don't want to just pick on, you know, just women. But please don't use men to feel better about yourself. The temptation for some of us is not to lust. Listen. Temptation for some of us is to be lusted after. The temptation for some of us is not to lust, but the temptation for some of us, men and women, is to be lusted after. We love the attention. We love the recognition. We love the, 
flirt. No, no, no. We love that. We feed off of that. And, we, and you know what that is? You know what that is? That is a sick, toxic way of finding your identity and security. And if you're a woman that loves the unwanted attention of men, first of all, they're probably not really interested in you. They're playing games just like you. I just want to. I just want to urge you, both men and women, and I'm not going to just speak, both men and women. Please pursue godliness in this area, and don't find your security, identity, and significance in small, fleeting, flirtatious moments of feeling like you're wanted. Because you know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day. If you're a woman, the kind of guy that you want to marry won't be interested in someone like you. And if you're a man, the kind of woman that you want to marry will not be interested in someone like you. So if you're sitting here today and you love that, you enjoy that subtly or blatantly, I want to say to you, go to the cross and die to it. Die to it. See, see, I want, I, I want to end with this. Because the most important thing for us is, is what does this mean for our church? What does it mean for our church as a community, as a kingdom community? Yes, this means that in this kingdom community, we don't idolize marriage. We have an environment in which singles could talk openly and honestly about their struggles. We affirm chastity as a biblical value, and we support one another to pursue chastity. Married couples in our church don't idolize marriage, don't find our significance in kids or children. Married couples in our church also don't talk, you know, sort of romantically and unrealistically about marriage, but we talk very realistically about marriage with one another, including sharing our marriage struggles. This is also a place as a church, we challenge one another to say, why are you messing around? Why are you playing games? We also challenge one another as we pursue individual freedom and personal fulfillment as idols. We become that kind of a culture in which singleness is affirmed and challenged and marriage is affirmed and challenged and so on and so forth. But the last thing that I want to say, maybe this is the most important thing for me to say is this, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to communicate this well in the next two minutes, but I'm going to try. We have to be a church in which this will be totally countercultural. We have to be a church in which families will invite singles into their home and make the singles a vital part of their home. Can I say that once more? We have to be a church. When well, married couples get together, married couples, and the singles get together, married We have to be a church with them. Families are actively, Eddie Cho, come on, actively being a part of our, of our marriages and our children. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, where's my Bible? Where did it go? Mark chapter 10. Can you go ahead and put that up on the screen? I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers and sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come. Here's what Jesus is saying and what we've been saying along. Marriage is not eternal. Marriage is not eternal. Marriage is not going to last forever. Which means your nuclear family is not going to last forever. In heaven, the primary relationship is going to be husband and wife and children. That's not going to be the primary relationship. What is the primary relationship? The kingdom family. The kingdom family. The primary relationship that will last for eternity. Sorry to those of you that are going to marry like in two months. Sorry to kind of burst your bubble. Your marriage is not going to last forever. Your marriage in heaven, there won't be marriage as we know it. Why? Because we know that that's not the ultimate fulfillment. And God says, the relationship, the unit the, that's going to last forever is the kingdom family of God, of brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. And here's the thing. 
today, right now, when an American nuclear family, mommy and daddy and three kids, actually invite a single and singles into their home. And that single becomes aunt and uncles and brothers and sisters to that mom and dad and the kids and actually affirm their singleness. Let me finish. And affirm their marriage. We display to the world what will last for all of eternity. All of eternity. Are you hearing me? So that we give witness to a watching world that says, kingdom of God. What's that like? When's it going to come? We could point to our families, God's family, mom and dad and kids and brothers and sisters and spiritual aunts and uncles and go, this is going to last for eternity. That is what it's about. So for some of us that are married, who are like, we want to connect with other married couples and we want to connect... Change your perspective and go, what does it mean for your family to be a kingdom family that regularly invites singles in which their singleness is affirmed because they see marriage not an idolatry and they're becoming your brother, your sister, your aunts and uncles. Oh. (laughs) Lydia, are you you, you feeling me? Do you know how radical that would be if there was a church called New Community where people are like, they do What? Oh, it's organic. It's normal. It's natural. The singles, they don't just hang out with singles. What do they do? They are a vital part of the married couples and their families and their aunts and uncles and brothers. What? Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. It happens everywhere. And it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom to come for all of eternity. we do that here? Can we do that here? Can we be that here? I tell you, that's the only way that singles will live out the biblical value of sex ethic. That's the only way. That's the only way is if they know that they are affirmed and loved by the ultimate and the only family that will last forever. It's late. Let's pray together. Church, be, be the kingdom community. Witness of the eternal age to come, not just by fighting injustice, not just by giving yourselves radically generous. Be a witness and a testimony of the kingdom that is to come by being radically, radically kingdom family-centered, kingdom family-oriented. May our church be a reflection in this city of what it means to be the family of God. Convict us, show us, Lord, and teach us. Convict us, show us, and teach us, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great, great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next time.